Join us in one of the deepest and most touching episodes we have ever recorded. We dive deep into the heart of an ambushed terrorist attack by the Los Etas cartels against the United States ICE agents. This episode, my brothers, is not for the weak of heart. Our special guest today is a warrior. He's a hero. Retired ICE agent Victor Avila was severely wounded and his partner killed during a mission in a Zetas-dominated territory. Avila and his partner Zapata were gunned down in cold blood in an ambush on Highway 57. Avila survived. This is a very powerful episode that will touch you in a very deep way. There is so much to learn here. Such an incredible message that will change the way you look at life. Stand by. up my brothers welcome back to the man of war my name is rafa conde and of course i am your host the man on a mission to transform you into a modern day warrior we're all about the warrior's mindset we're all about the warrior's code we are all about living life that embodies that warrior spirit my brothers listen to me we are getting to a point here in this world that we need more men like you, more warrior-minded men, men that are going to step up, men that are going to make a change, men that are going to take action, men that have the tenacity, the drive, and more importantly, the heart to run towards the sound of gunfire when the shit is kicking off, when the shit is hitting the fan. Men that are going to have compassion, they're going to be able to love and respect others, right? They're going to be able to step up better themselves. Why? Because they're putting the time into training to be better dads, to be better husbands, to be better leaders, to be stronger in their mindset, right? In their discipline and their approach to life, to have fucking vigor. My brothers, this is the warrior's way. This is the warrior's path. There is no other road. Get that through your head. It is time now to step up finally and start really taking action over your life. We need more warriors. We need more warriors out there. If you have not heard about the Conclave of Warriors, downtown Miami, you need to get your head out of your ass. This is only the most powerful event the most empowering event, the rawest event of the year. And I'm going to tell you straight up right now, if you miss it, you're going to regret it. We're going to join hundreds of warrior-minded individuals together for two immersive days. We're talking about breakout sessions. We're going to have that main stage presentation. We're going to have Q&A sessions. We're going to have VIP meet and greet, photo opportunities, book signings. We're going to have a PT by the Miami River. 
with Ray Care, Navy SEAL Ray Care leading the charge on that. It's an optional PT session, but boy, I would not miss it. We're going to have an inner circle breakfast. I mean, look, the bottom line, this is going to be an amazing event and you cannot afford to miss it. Go check out our fucking kick-ass cadre of speakers and more information. Grab your tickets. As you know, they've already gone up in price twice. They're going to be going up now in September again. It is time for you to grab these tickets. I'm telling you right now, you know, this event is going to be sold out straight up. Go check it out. Conclaveofwarriors.com. That's conclaveofwarriors.com. Also, if you have not checked us out on Instagram, I'm at Man of War with two R's. I'm there every day, often. We're immersive. We do some lives. We do videos. We we DM each other. I mean, it's a it's a great brotherhood that we have going on right now on Instagram. And I'm very, very active there. Now, before we jump into this powerful episode, I'm gonna ask you to do one thing for me. Go over to iTunes, leave us a review. All right, we bring you some badass content every single week, twice a week, some great information. We are very unique. We are not your same old, you know, masculinity podcast or fitness podcast or, you know, whatever bullshit podcast. We are very unique and specific and we stay within that box because we believe at this point that is our niche, right? We are where we are. We are such a great podcast and we continue to trend higher every single month because of your support, no doubt about it. But I would like for you to go to iTunes, leave us a review and share it with someone. Maybe tag someone on Instagram or on Facebook or on Twitter. Let it, let them know that we are alive, that we are around and what we're all about. I would really, really appreciate that. All right, guys, listen, the episode that we have today is a very, very powerful episode. Put your earphones on, Go someplace quiet where you can focus on this because, like I said, it's a very, very powerful episode, very deep, so much to gain from this, but also you can hear the emotions, okay, when Victor speaks, all right? Remember, this was a major ambush by one of the most violent criminal organizations ever. And with that said, I'm going to make a disclaimer. This episode is not for everyone. All right, if you're a weak-minded individual or a weak-hearted individual, I have no clue why you would be listening to this podcast to start with, but regardless, it's on you and you will listen at your own risk. All right, let's get right into it. Victor Ravala, great to have you on board, brother. Welcome to the Man of War podcast. Thank you for having me on, Ralph. I appreciate it. Thank you. Awesome, man. So we were talking before the podcast here, and damn, you know, you have a very powerful story in store for us here. But more importantly, we're going to really dive deep into your mindset and dive deep into how you have overcome that incident that you had going back in 2011 and where you are today. So for our listeners that don't know who you are, do me a favor, Victor, introduce yourself, please. My name is Victor Avila. Uh, I'm a former uh, special agent with uh, U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, ICE, uh, also known today now as HSI, Homeland Security Investigations. Um, I worked there um, for approximately 12 years. Before that, I was a United States probation officer, and um, I worked along the border, um, and specifically in El Paso. was stationed there initially uh, when I got out of the academy. And then um, my career took me to across the border 
to the U.S. consulate in uh, Ciudad Juarez, where I started my career that eventually led to uh, official assignment in Mexico City in 2009. Very cool. So what we're going to do here is we're going to dive right in to what happened February 2011, okay? We're going to dive in there, and uh, I want you to just tell us exactly where you were and you know, let our listeners know how it occurred. Absolutely. Uh, there's a little bit of a, a background here just so the listeners can understand the dynamics of the country at that time uh, in Mexico. We had approximately five agents assigned to the ICE attache office at the U.S. Embassy in Mexico City, and we covered the whole country of Mexico. I specifically was assigned to lead the Global Trafficking in Persons Initiative, we call it GTIP, uh, investigations into human trafficking um, and some smuggling. But we did, we all dabbled in everything, money laundering, arms trafficking, uh, bulk cash smuggling and, and the sort, uh, drug trafficking, of course. Um, so I started my, uh, my career there in Mexico in, in June of 2009 and was working hard. Uh, the hardest I've ever worked in my career was when I was stationed there in Mexico. Right. So uh, it's, it's just a, a good to understand it was really, really nonstop work in, in Mexico. It was, uh, it kept me away from my home um, practically, you know, 20, 25 days out of the month. Um, that That's how busy it was traveling, not just uh, within the country of Mexico, but in the U.S. and Central America and other parts. But, um, you know, fast forward to, um, to February, um, I had uh, actually been in the States uh, conducting another investigation completely unrelated to the assignment that I was about to get. Um, I actually arrived in country in Mexico on, uh, on Sunday. The shooting happened on a Tuesday. So for reference, I, I arrived in the country on Sunday night. I showed up to, to work Monday which is February 14th, Valentine's Day, and was was very much in need of staying in the office for a whole week to catch up with administrative work and you know all the agents out there and, and police police uh, force and law enforcement know that everything that we do in the field has to be written down and documented. So I, I was really backlogged and having to complete all that all that work. When um, that morning, uh, right around noon uh, a colleague of mine tells me hey, uh, watch out because they're looking at a sin in you and uh and, and another td wire referred to Jaime Zapata as a td wire temporary agent to Monterey and uh I'm a I'm not a shy guy I'm a little feisty and I immediately challenged the that from my colleague I said what what do you mean I mean I just got in here I haven't been in the country for a week I have a lot of work to do there's got to be other agents here that can do that Specifically because this assignment had to do with a case that I wasn't very familiar with as far as working it. I knew what the case right. was about, but I had nothing to do with as far as investigative purposes with it, even though we all helped each other in the office. This was really a case, it was a big money laundering case that um, wasn't really involved in. And, and sure enough, right after lunchtime in Mexico City around, around 2 o'clock, I get the official assignment from my immediate supervisor. He calls me over and tells me, hey, Victor, uh, I need you and the temporary agent, uh, Jaime Zapata, to go down and meet our counterparts from the Monterey office and pick up this equipment, some equipment. Um, all I knew was it was some kind of surveillance or 
video, audio equipment. That's all I knew it was. And we need to go pick it up right now. And I, I continued to challenge it. I, I told my supervisor that there's got to be a better way to bring this um, this equipment into the into the city by specifically by diplomatic pouch, which is a secure method of, of shipping. That's how we get all our mail and other uh, things shipped to the embassy, uh, or by air. Uh, there's different ways to do it. I didn't I didn't think it was necessary for us to go drive on that highway to go get it. Right, right. So I challenged it. Um, I made my supervisor actually go knock on the door where the attache and the deputy attache were behind closed doors in the meeting. He went and knocked and um, and got the, the deputy attache. He came out and we asked him, listen, we just we just been talking to uh, the assistant attache in Monterey. And he's telling us that there's a lot of the word that he used was scrimmages. There's a lot of scrimmages going on on Highway 57 with the Mexican military and the Zeta cartel. It's not safe uh, to drive on that highway. Uh, the deputy attaché said, and I'll never forget it. Um, he said, "I'm not aware of any security incidents in Mexico or security issues. Uh, big pardon, security issues in Mexico, and I need that." equipment by close of business day tomorrow. He turned around and left and closed the door. My supervisor and I looked at each other and, okay, at that point, you're ordered and you're ordered, you gotta go. So I get on the phone with the deputy, uh, the, the assistant attache in Monterey. He's an ICE agent as well. And I talked to him, I said, what's going on? How do we, where do we need, how do we do this? Because now we have to make arrangements to actually drive on this highway. Um, but while I'm while I'm uh, challenging this with my supervisor, there happens there's an alert out by the State Department that has actually been sent out uh, about three weeks prior, prohibiting all U.S. personnel from driving on this highway. And you'll hear me refer to it as Highway 57. That's the main highway, the main artery, uh, the toll road that from Mexico City to Monterey. And well, that's a highway that's. Uh, is, is it like, say, a highway like we picture here in the United States, or like a four-lane highway? Was it, a, or was it a very narrow type of? Uh, no, uh, it's it's uh, they call it highway, but really it, it is an interstate uh, uh, freeway, if you will. Uh, four lanes, two lanes north, two lanes south, with divided by a median. It's it's the safe road, quote unquote. It's the safe road. It's the toll road. It's the nicely paved road, um, and that's. The I had traveled that road many, many times before. Um, even when I was a, a temporary agent assigned there, I was, I was, um, I was very familiar with the road, and um, and so you know, I um, that, that that alert from the State Department was completely ignored. It was just um, there was no the standard operating procedures for us to do this in country any other time was what well, there's a lot of things going on reports and and. And uh, you have to breathe and do all these other things, escorts, who's going to go with you. All that was ignored this time. And there was a big sense of urgency by my supervisors wanting that equipment. So I, I, I get on the phone with uh, the assistant NSA in Monterey, and we make arrangements for the following day um, to, to meet somewhere. Um, at that time, this is around, this is Valentine's Day, February 14th, around 3 o'clock. PM, Jaime, come, 
Jaime, especially Agent Jaime Zapata, who was stationed out of the Laredo office. He had been in the country, I think, just a little over a week. Um, I had never met him. I had never seen him before. I met him right then and there. And I said, hey, listen, uh, we got to go. I understand they assigned you with me. Let's uh, let's get together. Let's exchange some phone numbers. I had uh, radios. We used to use a lot of Nextel radios to communicate back then. But Jaime had his own. We were able to exchange our phones. And uh, I, I asked him to please um, take a cab from his hotel to my apartment because we live in the northern part of Mexico City on the way out. And as you can understand with the traffic, I wasn't going to drive down to pick him up. And one of the other temporary agents said, no, Victor, I know, I know where you live. I'll, I'll have him with you. And I asked Jaime to be in my apartment at 6.30 a.m. And so there, there it was. There, there was the assignment. Um, I then now uh, stayed in the office, uh, kind of ruined the whole uh, Valentine's Day plans, uh, dinner with my wife right. and my family. Um, but nevertheless, uh, even my wife, who at that time was working uh, for the security office, the RSO, uh, at that time, couldn't understand why why that assignment was coming down that way. And, and you'll understand why I tell you the story, um, how she hears from it. But um, so so yeah. Uh, next morning, um, 6:30 a.m., February 15th, uh, Jaime shows up right on time, and we go in my armored uh, suburban. We, in Mexico, are issued um, uh, armored vehicles. In this case, it was a 2009 Chevrolet Suburban that I was the only one that had driven that because we had just gotten that, you know, months before. And we had actually been the ones to go pick them up uh, stateside. So very familiar with the vehicle at that point. We drive off, I'm driving. Um, Jaime and I are getting to know each other um never never spoken to him before i never seen him before but we hit it off we there was never an awkward moment in that in that car uh we drove and, and we spoke about so many things um specifically uh Heine telling me a lot of his personal personal stuff and personal information uh, which reminded me a lot of myself as a uh, as a border agent and a hard-working agent uh that i pride myself in I saw I saw my Jaime and 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 I uh, really took to him and we had a great 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 conversation driving. So now we're headed um, we're headed we're headed south. I'm sorry north, and we're making contact with the other agents that are going to meet us. And so the halfway point is the the state and the city of San Luis Potosí. Right. And I wanted to meet there and they wanted to meet me to drive further. They were, you know, we were kind of just joking around where we're actually going to make this, this uh, exchange. And so and it ended up being that I drove a little bit further than San Luis Potosí. Um, but, you know, we, we continued driving. Uh, our first stop was to refuel at a little gas station off the off Highway 57. And uh, I asked Jaime, you know, you need anything, you want, you know, get some snacks. He said, no, um, I'm okay. Um, okay, so we continued off and I'm still driving. And we eventually made contact with another agent, uh, another ICE agent who's actually stationed at, in Monterey at the U.S. consulate there with uh, uh, another coworker, which is a, a Mexican national who's uh, attached to the office, they both uh, we both meet them at kilometer 100. Happens to be 
a restaurant on the side of the road. Right. And uh, so we, they drive the same Suburban that I drive. Uh, I drive a blue one. They drive a, a, a cream colored one. And we open the back. And these Suburbans, it's important to know, they have uh, not only the, the regular hatchback of, a, of an SUV, but when you open that hatchback, there's an additional door, uh, which is an armored door with a small window in the middle of it. And that swings, you know, like a traditional door, left to right. Right, right. And so we open the whole thing up, and we're loading these boxes up, and they're huge, huge boxes, huge, meaning we have to not lower, not just lower the third row seat, but the second row seat as well. So we flatten the whole thing and push up these boxes up against our seats in the front, the driver's seat and, and the uh, passenger seat, big boxes, medium boxes, small boxes, and they barely fit. So we do the exchange, we load up, uh, we transfer the boxes from one suburban to the other. We use the restroom there. I asked Jaime if he wanted to grab any, anything to eat. It was about 1130 in the morning at that time. But Jaime had referred to uh, a subway. We had seen a subway driving uh, on our way there. There's this big, big uh, rest area, which I was very familiar with. There's a, a subway, there's a church chicken. And Jaime was very taken aback and, and very surprised that all these American restaurants were there. Mm-hmm. And he, he wanted Subway. I said, okay, we'll wait for the Subway when we drive back. So we now we're heading south. We're heading back to Mexico City mm-hmm. and have the equipment with us. I'm still driving. And um, right about within, I guess, 15, 20 minutes of that drive, the first, the first kind of a awkward thing that had never happened to me. And I had driven in Mexico many, many, many times and gone through many checkpoints, right. illegal, illegal uh, military police. Um, but this, this time there was a, a lone federal police, Mexican police officer on the me- in the median right. of the highway uh, outside of his patrol unit. He's in, he's in uniform and he's holding a, a, a long gun, an M4, and he, he's standing like in a three-quarter position, kind of scanning the the traffic. And people are, it's, it's not a checkpoint, it's nothing. It's just one guy, one policeman um, standing there, kind of scanning left and right as, as the traffic passes by. And, and traffic is kind of slowing down for him, not knowing what he wants. So we do the same. We kind of slow down, look at him. He looks at us. And we keep on driving. And uh, I tell Jaime, man, that was... That was weird. Uh, um, I ate a little bit of foul language in there, and I tell him, you know, you scared, man? And he says, yeah. And I said, me too. This is, this is very effing weird. Um, it's very awkward. I don't know what the hell that guy is doing. We look at him and look, I keep on looking, looking at him through the mirrors on the side, and we keep on driving and kind of forget about him, you know? That's, that was it. That, okay, we're good. We eventually get to the... Uh, so you guys just kept on. Kept on. We kept on driving. It was just a very, very awkward, very scary feeling of that guy not knowing what, what you know, what he wanted to do, what we, what we, what he was up to. But we get to the subway. It's it's a very, very peaceful day. It's a very nice, clear day, and you know, seventy two degrees. And I tell Jaime, can't believe the weather. And I tell him, listen, it's just a, it's beautiful weather over here. I, I I call it San Diego weather. Um and. So we eat, very few people there. We wash up, take about 30 minutes for lunch. Right. This time it's, a, it's about 2 o'clock, it's 2 p.m. 
And okay, so we're heading back and I throw him the keys and I tell him, okay, it's your time to, uh, to drive. Um, Jaime had never driven an armored vehicle before. And I, I told him, this is a good opportunity for you to kind of get familiar with the car. The Suburban weighs almost six tons. And it's not the same as a regular vehicle, especially for stopping and, and going times, right. uh, additional times for that. So I told him to take advantage of the open road, get used to the, the Suburban. I had a tremendous amount of work that I was trying to get to on my BlackBerry back then. Uh, I remember I was, I, was, I was setting up a human trafficking conference in, in Ciudad Juarez and had all these other things going on at the same time. So it helped me that he was driving so I could, you know, make, make a bunch of phone calls and, and, and get some work done. So, so I, there I was, I, I called my supervisor, uh, I told him, I checked in and said, listen, uh, uh, we're headed there. We might be coming into the city around uh, rush hour. And in Mexico City, the rush hour is between 7 and 9 p.m. And uh, so it's a little I bit later than, than in the States. Yes, yes, it's a little bit later. It runs about that time, and mm-hmm. that's about the time we're going to be hitting hitting uh, the city. And I even told Jaime, listen, when we get to the city and, and come in, you'll pull over and I'll take over because um, it, it's just the, the, the traffic is just horrific there. And I'll t- I told him I'll, I'll take over from there and drive into the city. And he said, fine, you know, for the most part, uh, I, I got to work. I was working my BlackBerry. And the next thing I remember, uh, Jaime uh, telling me, hey, listen, uh, look, he grasped my attention to look at these SUVs that just passed us. Um, we were going about 70, 72 miles an hour. I asked Jaime, keep it around that, that speed. And he tells me, hey, is that a long gun in this SUV that had just passed us? And I look up and, and sure enough, I see the long gun sticking out uh, in between a couple of occupants in the back of the of their SUV. And I uh, kind of just told me, I just let them, let them go. They were going maybe 90 miles an hour. They're going pretty fast. And I just, I just said, let them, let them be, let them go, let them go. And sure enough, they, they drove and almost, almost out of sight. And within a couple of minutes, we were on top of them. They had, they had slowed down tremendously and we, uh, we were on them. And now we had one of the SUVs right next to us and another SUV in front of us. All right. So let me slow you down here. So they blew by you. You let them go. Right. And then somehow you kind of moved towards them and approached them uh, a few minutes later. Well, how long was this? It's a couple of minutes. We, we kept on driving at the same speed. We just kept on driving on the highway. They're the ones that slowed down drastically. Gotcha. So they slowed down way, okay, way down. Yeah, mm-hmm. They were down to 30 miles an hour or so. Right. And so all of a sudden, it, it's very awkward. You know, you know, we're going 70. These guys are slowing down. And one of them is on the, we're on the far right lane. And one of them is on the left lane, on the inside lane. And the other one is right in front of us. And the one in front of us is, is slowing down. And so we can't pass him. And now the Suburban right next to us, or the SUV right next to us, um, they take out, they come out right next to our windows. They lower the windows and start pointing AK-47s at us, ordering and yelling at us to, to pull over. And, you know, I'm, I'm on the passenger side looking at this, and I tell Jaime, go, 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 step on it. So he steps right. on it and trying to, to pass the vehicle in front of us. And somehow we maneuver a little bit to get away from them just a bit. 
but that that suburban obviously is so heavy you know we can't speed up that that fast and and now they're just right on us i mean literally the the vehicle next to us that that suv is right almost hitting us mirror to mirror wow and the other one is slowing down and they're basically what they're doing is they're doing a rolling roadblock on us they had their guns out they're ordering us all in spanish yelling pull over pull over pull over so jaime is forced to pull over to avoid a collision and to the to the right side of the shoulder there happens to be a big area there coincidentally just pulls over and as soon as they pull over um they block us in and they jump out of the suvs and i'm uh, i'm counting eight to ten armed uh individuals they form like a a u-shape in front of the suburban with ak-47s and handguns and uh and other assault rifles there uh or i don't know what other weapons but long guns so what kind of vehicle uh, were you in were you in a truck or were you in a vehicle a car or so we're uh, suv uh a suburban, suburban. suburban. Okay. and um immediately one of the one of the guy one of the cartel members you know uh comes to jaime's door and opens the door opens the driver's side door completely swings it open and i see him and he's standing there with a uh, a handgun to his side, but as soon as he opens the door, Jaime grabs the handle and shuts the door instantly. The, those doors, uh, those SUVs, the doors, as you can imagine, are very heavy. They don't have the standard uh, handle that a vehicle has. It has a, an industrial sure. type yep. uh, handle. So as soon as it, it swings open, it swings right back shut. Jaime grabs it, shuts it, and we start hitting the lock buttons. And the individual is this this the guy at, the, at Jaime's door is yelling at the top of his lungs to get get out. You know, in, in Spanish and profanity language, for, uh, you know, lace language, he's just yelling to get out, get out, open the door, get out of the car, open the door, get out. And and we don't. And so he shoots a couple of rounds at the door. And it, it takes it takes me, I know, a couple of seconds to. Can I even just imagine, like, did he just fire rounds, you know? This is it's so surreal. Did he just shoot at the car? Yep. And, and, and I'm yelling, by the way, Jaime and I have our hands up, almost plastered up against the windshield, yelling at them. Uh, I'm yelling at them to, uh, first I tell them, you are, you are mistaken who, are, who we are. You whoever you think we are, we're not, uh, we are Americans. Right. We are us embassy employees. We are diplomats. This is a diplomatic vehicle. Take a look at the plates. I'm yelling this at the top of our lungs. I'm, I'm, I'm asking them, let me identify myself with my diplomatic passport. Sure. And, I'm, and I'm yelling and yelling that, you know, they, it's, uh, all, all I see and, and I've described this before, it's just evil in their eyes. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they're not hearing any of it. So the the driver comes over to kind of the front hood of the car because I'm the one that's yelling at him and, mm. and trying to to identify ourselves. During that commotion, two shooters come to my side of the window. I'm the front passenger side, and they introduce an AK-47 and a handgun. The window, my side driver's side window, had lowered down a couple of inches. 
when we hit the, the lock buttons, we inadvertently lowered that window. And they came across and introduced those two weapons. And I immediately raised the, uh, the button, you know, the, the button, I raised the windows and it caught the barrels of both guns. And I remember seeing the guy with the AK-47 push the butt of the gun upwards so the barrel can point downwards. And I, I leaned back kind of against the post. Now, keep in mind, we can't jump to the back of the Suburban because it's full of boxes. Boxes are, are, are up, up against our back. Okay. And so I'm, I'm kind of up against the post, just kind of trying to make myself, you know, smaller in there. And without notice, they opened fire. And they opened fire uh, a lot of rounds. Uh, after, you know, I'll, I'm giving you information that I found out obviously afterwards, but there was over 90 rounds shot at the Suburban. So they start shooting inside the cabin. Mm-hmm. I see Jaime get hit on his right side of his torso, and he, Jaime yells out, "I'm hit! I'm hit!" Damn. Uh, and I, uh, I said, uh, I had my finger up, finger on the on the button, and event they they shot. They shot, I don't know how many shots they, they they shot inside the cabin, and then they pulled out the. Uh, the barrels and the window went up and they just shot up that side of my window and they just sprayed, they just sprayed the suburban. I tell Jaime, go, go, go. At this time, Jaime was becoming unresponsive. I grabbed the, uh, the gear shift lever and I just slam it down and I put my hand on, on Jaime's knee on the gas pedal to go. And we rev up the suburban and crash the vehicle in front of us. The one that was blocking us. Right. We crash it. And as soon as we crash it, we the the suburban goes into the median, in the middle of the two uh, splitting of the two uh, of the highway of the lanes, and I grab the steering wheel trying to get the suburban back on Highway 57. And if you ever go online and see the pictures, you'll see that's how it ended up. Right. Uh, at that point, Jaime had become unresponsive, and then I noticed that he had been shot in his leg, and that's where he was bleeding profusely from. So. I'm, I'm attending to him, I'm yelling at him, I'm shaking him, I'm, I'm putting pressure, and, and I can't put enough pressure on my hands just uh, because of the bleeding. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I, I'm yelling at him, I'm trying to keep him awake, and I get, I get on my phone, I get on my next to radio, and it doesn't work, there's no signal. I, mm-hmm. slam it, I slam it on the floorboard, I pick up another Blackberry that I had, and I called the U.S. Embassy. Right, right. And I, I, heard the, I heard this phone call. It was recorded at the U.S. Embassy, uh, what they call Post One. It was uh, recorded, and I, had just, I just heard it last, last year for the first time during the, uh, the trial of these guys in D.C. Right. So, Victor, let, let me kind of backtrack on, on the incident here. So, here you are, okay, and... These guys, you, you see this vehicle, they pass by you, all of a sudden, they slow down. You know, being in law enforcement, you know that at this point, something, you know, your hairs and your and your body all start standing up because especially in an environment uh, like that, um, in, in that area, 
you know, you have to have that mindset, right? Where, where you're saying to yourself, man, you know, this shit is not good. Something is, is either happening or something is about to happen. What was your mindset at that time? I mean, what were you thinking when they slowed down and right before they got out of that vehicle with those with the firearms? I mean, what were you thinking at that moment when you're approaching them and you could see that they were slowing down? The first thing I thought was disbelief. It was kind of a denial. I, I couldn't believe that that's what that was happening. It just it seemed that that was not happening. Like it, it, when when the guns came out on the side of when we we're still rolling and the guns came out and they're ordering and they had these guns pointed at us. It, it just this is not real. That, that that's what went immediately through my mind. This is what this. I never thought it was a joke. I never thought it was anything like that. I always took it seriously, but I, but somehow in my mind, didn't want to believe that this was happening. That the country that I worked in, um, the country that I love, that um, that my parents come from, that my heritage is from, all of a sudden these all these feelings and the violence and everything that's going on, and all the intelligence that I know about the country and working there, it's happening to Jaime and I right then and there. And it is it is it is overwhelming to say the least. Because um, uh, Victor, back then um, in those years, 2011, yeah, I was in I was working uh, attached on the task force for DEA, and I got to tell you that, you know, we were getting intel from from Mexico, and and the uh, to be honest with you, man, they were living like savages. A lot of these guys, you know, they were taking lives, they were cutting heads. Not that they're not doing it anymore, because it's still out there. But man. I mean, you knew that you were in a risky environment, no doubt about it. So I could only imagine when they slowed down and you knew that some shit was going to go down, you know, how you were feeling. Yeah, and, and what, made it, what made it kind of really spectacular at that time is that, you know, in the, in the U.S., as law enforcement uh, officials, you have, you have your dispatch, you have your radio, you have your backup, you know where the other person is. You could call somebody. We didn't have that here. There was no one there but us, completely by ourselves. Um, and, and that, after the shooting began, and I'm, I'm there in the cabin, and I'm trying to get on the phone, that's where it's sinking in, where, shit, the people that I'm calling is at the U.S. Embassy. Not, not here on Highway 57. By the way, I had no idea where exactly I was on Highway 57. I know we had passed... The, the state of San Luis Potosí a few minutes back, but I couldn't tell them the kilometer marker we were at. Um, I got disoriented with the shooting and, and, and couldn't tell them because the first thing they asked is, where are you? Well, I'm on Highway 57, but um, somewhere on the road between, you know, close to Querétaro and, and Mexico City, I couldn't tell them exactly where I was at. So that, that, that's exactly what was going to my mind, the disbelief, the no, this is not happening for real, um, the, the training, everything that we go through, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, all that matters in this instant. And I'm talking about an instant. And this shooting, by the way, Rafa, was, this is one, this was not a three second shooting or a four second or a seven second shooting, which mo most law enforcement shootings are. This sure. took a long time to develop. Uh, I estimate it now, it took almost close to two minutes. So it wasn't and an escalation. You know, you know it just it escalated from the point where they got out of the vehicle 
and then I mean, from what you're telling me, there was some dialogue that happened, and then that's when the shooting occurred. Yeah, they. Um, I, I was screaming at the top of my lungs, telling them, "We're not who you are. We're Americans. We're U.S. Embassy employees. We're diplomats." I thought. Uh, because there's been other incidents where diplomats have been held at gunpoint many, many other times in Mexico, DEA sure. agents, other ICE agents. And as soon as they identify themselves, it, it, it ends right there. So somehow I thought in that cabin when I yell at them and communicate that to them. And let me tell you, I didn't know then that they had heard me, but it came out in the trial seven years later. Uh, I had never had a, a scumbag or, a, or one of these criminals corroborate me, but they did. They heard me. They said, yeah, we heard him that he was a diplomat, that he was an American. And so now I know that they actually heard me, that they, that they knew that we were not me cartel members. We were not Mexican police officers, uh, that we were Americans and they well knew that. They very well knew that and they still uh, had their orders or their their whatever it was that day, the agenda to assassinate us. So you're, you're telling me basically that they had an agenda to go hunt you guys down and take you out. Yes, they, the, um, you're gonna hear a lot of conflicting stories. This is not a carjacking, I'll tell you right now. People wanna say, oh, well, they wanted to steal the Suburban. No, no, they did not. No, they did not want the Suburban. Um, they, they, they destroyed that Suburban. Um, if they wanted that suburban, I, I never felt that they, I, I never got that, that that was a carjacking. They knew that we were, uh, that we were Americans and I told them we were Americans and it was very clear that they knew that and still they went through it. They had the opportunity to say, oh shit, uh, wrong people, wrong, we messed up, this is not them, let's get the hell out of here, right? They control that whole area. Nothing's gonna, nobody, nothing's gonna happen so nobody's gonna, no law enforcement officer is gonna go investigate that. But they did have that window of opportunity to say, ah, shit, let's go, let's get out of here. It's, it's not whoever we think it is or whatever. They did not do that. They still chose to go through with it. So, Victor, what group were they affiliated with? These are Los Cetas, Cetas Cartel. So for those that, that don't know who they are, you do just Google it and you'll start seeing some very nasty photos of what they do and some videos that are out there that would pr pretty much shock you, rock your world, and, and really see what people, what these violent criminals are made of. Absolutely. These guys are the, probably the most ruthless cartel, and, and you know, I call them... I call them terrorist organizations. That's what they are. Absolutely. But uh, they, um, yeah, they, that's that's who they, these guys were, and and so so we're there. Uh, I'm in, I'm in the cabin. Um, I get the call out to the to the U.S. Embassy. They answer the phone, and and you you could see that online too if you Google it. My my phone call, uh, where I tell them that we're shot, we're shot. My name, my I gave my supervisor's name. I work for ICE, and I tell them they know where I'm, I'm at. I tell them that I that they know where I'm at because I had no idea where I was at as far as um, um, ge you know geography there. But um, they event then it immediately transferred the call. This is only a 20 second recorded call. It got transferred to the regional security office, which is the RSO, which is the diplomatic security special agent uh, office, which is the security for all embassies, and. The, the receptionist, this lady, answers the phone, 
and I'm yelling at her, you know, that we're shot. And she basically drops the phone, runs down the hall, yelling, you know, Victor Avila has been shot. My wife works there. My wife was five feet away from that phone call. And so my wife jumps out of her desk into the hallway and says, what did you just say? And she's like, so she didn't know that I was a husband. And Victor Avila's on the phone, they've been shot, and they've been shot. And my wife goes into this panic mode, as you can imagine. Sure. It always uh, it always shakes me up just to think about it. But she, uh, so I, you know, then then an RSO agent, which is a friend of mine, gets on the phone, and, and I'm telling them, you know, it's gotten to shit here. We've been attacked. We've been shot. Um, at that point, I still didn't know that I had been shot. Um, I, I'm, I'm telling them to, to please send help. Where are you? I don't know exactly where I'm at. Then all of a sudden, uh, an ICE agent gets on the line and all these people will get start getting on the line and I'm just yelling at them and telling them, uh, trying to get some information to them. While this is going on, Rafa, the, one of the SUVs takes off. I see it from, I have very, very limited uh, vision from my right side because these armored vehicles when you shoot the glass the glass on the inside turns like snow completely white and I had these visuals you know in, through some crevices and some cracks and I see the the one of the SUVs leave but then as soon as I think that it's leaving it makes a u-turn and makes a u-turn right in front of us parks the the their SUV right in front of the hood of our SUV Two guys get out with AK-47s, and they look at me from the front windshield, and I look at them, and they just spray the hell out of the, the, the front windshield of the Suburban. And I'm sitting there um, just kind of looking at them and, and realizing, ah, shit, the, 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 the windshield is stopping the rounds. I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm still here. That, that's, the, that's, that's the, you know, I, I went through all phases of fight, flight, fight and, and, and all that and that one was a freeze part um, it just froze there and then I see them you know they shoot they get back in the suburban and then they take off how close did they come to the to the windows you think the hood in front of the hood shit man so there were maybe six to eight feet right there blasting the windows you had some badass armor I gotta tell you that was a very good armor vehicle uh, yeah one of the best that, that they had uh, absolutely, it, it um, they saved sprayed. your life, man. It did. It definitely did. And uh, we talked a lot about armored vehicles when I was there in Mexico. It was it was it was a very new new thing to us, and it's kind of a cool thing. You think, oh, armored vehicles, but we I learned a lot about armored vehicles just by reading up on them. Um, and you're absolutely right. This was a a, a well built armored vehicle. Other than the fact that other other issues with a suburban, like the PA system, didn't work because it had broken during a uh, a visit and they never fixed it the siren didn't work because that never fixed it um so that i had other issues with the equipment but uh, yes the windshield did uh, did stop the rounds so then uh, i'm on the phone and i'm i'm just kind of leaning back i'm telling him we're going to be all right they're coming they're coming to get us now how did jaime exactly how did he get hit he got shot initially with the handgun on his side. So the, the handgun is coming on the side of my face. I moved back, mm -hmm. and it was a 9mm handgun, and it's coming on. I turned my head, 
And if you can imagine this, if you can picture this, the, the handgun is by my left ear. Right. Actually, turn my head, and it's shooting down. Um, right. While it was shooting, I grabbed the handgun with my hand and burned the hell out of my whole left hand and my finger, trying to stop it from shooting. But I see Jaime getting hit, boom, 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 you know, on the on, on his torso, uh, on the side of his torso, and. I never, I never actually saw him get shot with the AK-47 in his leg until after they stopped shooting. Then I saw because of the amounts of blood coming from his leg, and um, and, and so he he very quickly became unresponsive. Um, he he told me that he was going to die. I told me he's not going to die. That uh, we got we got help on it, uh, on the way, and everyone's coming to to get us. And and so on the phone, I'm trying to tell them. Um, they can hear me yelling at Jaime, uh, and one of my, my, my co-workers, a really good friend of mine, who is also an ICE agent, used to be a paramedic, tells me, have you checked yourself? And I said, no, no, I says, check yourself, because I was, I had a lot of blood on me, and I had a lot of glass and shrapnel on my face. And I, um, I said, okay, and sure enough, so I touched my chest, and I'm be- bleeding profusely from the right side of my chest. And then my left leg is, you know, I'm shot there. And I didn't find out until I got to the hospital I had been shot in the lower leg on the same left leg. And he tells me, take off your belt and, and do a tourniquet. I did. I, I took off my belt, put on my left leg, tied it up. And all this time I was on the phone with him, I, um, I, I, I said, I'm going to call the, in Mexico City while I was there, we had a vet unit, a Mexican Federal Police vet unit. And we worked with them, worked with them um, every day on a daily basis. You know, we did all our law enforcement um, uh, activities through them. You know, and, and as a diplomat and as an agent in another country, you have absolutely no power. You have to do everything to the host country. Uh, and we established very, very good personal relationships with these guys. And so I call him. I call uh, the head of the vetted union, uh, the vetted unit, and I actually call his office phone number which I never do. We always communicate through the radio or other cell phone. Um, but that day, just in, in panic mode, I actually called his office phone and he never answers that phone, but he answered it that day, thank God. And he didn't recognize my voice initially and, until eventually he's like, who's this? I know I, I'm yelling at the top of my lungs. It is Victor. We've been shot. Send me help. Send me help. And he eventually uh, authorized a, a helicopter from the federal police. Mexican federal police to go get us. Wow. Deep stuff right there, man. So walk me through when you're talking to your friend and he's telling you to put a tourniquet on. Okay. I mean, at this point, I've, you know, your mind is, 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 I know on your partner, Jaime, and, and, and your mindset at that point is to, you know, you got to survive this. So you put the tourniquet on your leg. Uh, are you in pain? You know, what are you thinking about during this situation? Absolutely no pain and absolutely no fear. And I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why right now. Um, never, never felt any fear at that moment. Um, no pain at that moment. I w- it was just a full-on rush to get people on the phone to come to us. I actually eventually talked to the pilot. They communicate, they patch me through the, the, the pilot of the helicopter 
and I went to my GPS, you know, the old fashioned GPS that you put up on the windshield. Yep. Uh, um, I went to it and I, uh, I went to the, I searched the, uh, the coordinates and I gave it to him. Um, during this whole time, um, there was a, uh, kind of backtracking a little bit here. There was a, a GPS tracker that was installed on, on the Suburbans months before for anything specifically like this. It was, it was an alert, an, an instant alert that would go off in DC if we were ever in, in any kind of danger. Well, I had, I had hit that switch. Um, but the switch, you know, it went, I turned it on, but it never sent an alert until eight hours later to DC. It didn't work. Right. Um, so a lot of malfunctions in our equipment. Um, but, but yeah, during the tourniquet, I, I didn't, I, I never felt pain, never felt pain. I was on the phone. I was very, very focused, extremely keen on every single little thing that was happening um, in the cabin, um, uh, cell phones, my weapons. I had two guns. I had two guns on me. It wasn't on me. They weren't on me. They were in my backpack that happened to be caught, get caught underneath the seats uh, when we lowered the seats. Uh, the backpack, I usually would carry it if you can imagine this, when you're driving, if you reach behind the seat on the floorboard right there, the easy access, that's where I always carried my guns. And that's where I had them. But when we lowered the seats and I jumped over to the passenger side, never never thought much much of them. They just stayed there. Right. Um, then, you know, um, I'll tell you right now, if I would have brandished, brandished a weapon, I, I wouldn't be telling you the story here right oh, now. Oh, sure, sure. Um, and so... Then, then I, then I got him. I pulled that backpack with all my might to pull it out of the under the seat. I got, I got, you know, had a Glock 19 and a and a Sig, and I got one. I put it in my waistband. I got another one that had just held it in my hand. And during the during that whole commotion, there was a what appeared to be an ambulance, a sole ambulance parked on the far right side. We're in the median. And they parked on the far right side of the shoulder of the other side of the highway. And this one paramedic, dressed kind of like a paramedic, comes over and tells me to open the door. And I'm pointing my gun through the windshield at him. He, he can't see me. I, I can barely see him because of the low visibility. And he's telling me to open the door. And I tell him, I have no idea who you are. And last year during the trial, I found out that that was a Zeta Cartel's ambulance wow they have, they have their own ambulance so when they get into the shootouts they have their paramedics available to rescue them fucking unbelievable Un unbelievable it's correct it's and so I'm, I'm i'm very glad i didn't trust anyone at that point rapa no one other than 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 the vetted guy that i knew from the mexican federal police and my co-workers um uh, and so the guy just runs back and takes off then a, a marked unit, a federal police marked unit drives by very slow. And I'm thinking, okay, this is still, I'm, I'm still in commotion. I'm still talking to people on the phone. And I said, okay, well, here we go. Let's, you know, here's the help. No, slows down, takes off. Wow. Uh, it comes out in the trial that it was a, a, a female cadet. The, the federal police academy in Mexico is housed in San Luis Potosí, about 10 minutes, 10 minutes north of where we were at. And so she saw the whole commotion and just took off. Jeez. Then the, 
a lot of things happened during that cabin. Uh, we were there for 40 minutes approximately before the whole Calvary and, and, and all the, the, the rescue showed up. Another, uh, like a state police officer, this guy is wearing a polo shirt with the, you know, the, the patch badge on there and like jeans. And he comes around the other side of the highway where I have very good visual, you know, where Jaime is at. He comes around the suburban behind the suburban and I'm just flying him wow. with, with my handgun. And I'm like, who the hell is this guy, you know? Yeah. And, and he's trying to open the door and get out. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not, like, I'm not getting out. I'm like, you open this door and you're going to get shot. And, and then he just unexpectedly leaves as well. So finally talk to the, the, the federal police guy, my, my friend, and I tell him, you better send somebody that I can identify because I'm not going to just open the, the, the door to anybody. But about 40 minutes later, yeah, I mean, the helicopter landed right there and Mexican federal uh, police, the military, everyone showed up. Everyone showed up. And the guy that, uh, that showed up to the window happens to be the chief of pol the, the head of the federal police now. He comes up to me and says, Victor, I'm here to help you. We're not going to hurt you. I'm so-and-so, and so-and-so -and -so sent me. And I, I asked him for his creds, man. I couldn't believe that. I said, I need to see your creds. He bought his creds. I, I think they never use them in Mexico. And it's all crunched up, and he shoves it through the window. And I said, okay. And then they pry the door open, and, and they take us, uh, Jaime and I, both in a helicopter to a, a hospital in San Luis Potosí. Wow. But my, my point to you about being scared is that I didn't tell you that I wasn't scared just because for any reason that that trip to the hospital when we were on the on the uh, helicopter, which was about an eight minute helicopter ride to the helipad of the hospital, just it just started sinking in. And that's when the fear came in for me. I became petrified, super, super scared because I knew I at that point they're going to come and kill me at the hospital. Because that's what the setas do. They don't leave survivors. And, and that's when the real fear set in. Uh, I didn't want to go to the hospital. Um, I kept on talking to my, my friend, the Mexican federal police uh, commander, telling him, hey, you better have somebody at the hospital. And he's like, hey, we're, we're sending people. They're on their way, but they're not there yet. We got to the hospital before they did. They put Jaime in a, they took him straight to the surgery room. They put me in a different room. And I, the hospital didn't know who we were. They thought we were Mexican federal police agents. And I didn't tell them on purpose who I was. Um, I didn't want to identify myself because I didn't trust anybody. And I thought for sure they're going to come and kill, kill me right here in this bed. And um, I, was on, I kept on talking on the phone with the police commander. And he's like, Victor, they're, they're on their way. They're on their way. They'll be there. And so eventually you could tell the, 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 the nurses and the doctors and the staff were kind of like, who the hell are you? And I remember just shouting in, from the, the bed that I was at, telling them, my name is Victor Avila, I'm an American. Um, you know, sorry. Papa. It's all right, man. Some powerful sorry. stuff right there, brother. Take your time, man. You know, I've told the story many times and it just... Certain certain types, um, certain parts of the, uh, the uh, of the story gets me sometimes still. I'm with you, brother. Just take your time. This is deep. So um, I, I yell, and, and you know, 
Italian, I'm an American. Um, I'm a U.S. Embassy employee. I'm an ICE special agent. And the staff and the doctors and the nurses, they their demeanor changed immediately, immediately. And uh, one of the doctors came to me a, you know, a few minutes later and he says, uh, um, I'm sorry about your, about your friend. He has expired. He, he said, this is all in Spanish, by the way. And I like the word, you know, in Spanish, they say the word expido, like it, it, you know, literally translated to expired. And I, I didn't appreciate him using that word. And I tell him what he expired, you know, uh, and he says he's passed away. And, um, and I just told him, please, please treat him with respect. And, um, and minutes later, um, federal police surrounded the, the hospital. These SWAT team kind of guys showed up. I remember the guy coming in, you know, fully, fully decked in, in all his gear. And he comes in and says, Victor Havila? I said, yes. He says, you are safe now. I am here under direct order. Uh, I'm not going to use his name, but the commander. And uh, you are safe. And the hospital is surrounded and you're safe. And I, I breathed a little bit of sigh of relief at that point, but it wasn't a, until about three hours later that the first U.S. personnel showed up. Um, and not until I saw a, a colleague of mine did I really, really sigh of relief, you know? You're almost out there on a little island by yourself. And, and uh, you know, even though this is, you know, your parents' country and your heritage comes from there, it's different, man. When you have your people uh, that you know that you're attached to, that you connect with, man, it's tough to be out there in a different country, no matter, you know, where it is. And let me let me go back just a little bit here, um, Victor. So when you say that these, you know, the doctors and the people, you know, change their demeanor uh, while you're in the hospital, when you told them you were American, you're saying that they became a little bit more helpful. Is that, is that what you're saying? Oh, yeah. Oh, completely. Not that they were not helpful before. They just, it's hard to explain. They, they knew at that point that there was an international incident in their hands. And they knew like, oh shit, Americans, uh-oh, you know, uh, and because and, it never happened before, that's why. And, that, and that's why they were, uh, they, they, yeah, they, a, lot, a lot more helpful, a lot more attentive. Um, uh, yes, it, it, it did change for the better, it did, it did. So talk to me about how you felt when you realized that your partner had passed and, you know, the fact that, you know, you survived and, and he, he didn't. I mean, how did that affect you and, and how does it affect you still nowadays? Well, I, I definitely went through the guilt phase and, and the why and, and why, why him and not me. I've gone through you know, countless, countless hours of counseling uh, to treat my, 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 my post-traumatic stress, dealing with that. And, and, and it's a difficult thing to, to deal with. And, and I'm glad I was open for it. I was open to talk to people about it. I, I sought help almost immediately um, because um, I, did, I did struggle with it. I did struggle because the, the way the shooting occurred and the violent nature of it, to me, it's it's a miracle that I'm alive, and 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 I I know God didn't want to take me that day, and that's the only explanation I have. Um, other people, it's it's very difficult. Um, sometimes, you know, uh, it wasn't healthy to get on the internet initially, 
to read what people would say, and and so I stopped that because um, it's just it's, it's difficult for people to understand in that situation. I don't know why uh, I'm still to this day still wondering what my role is, and maybe it is just to share the story and and to help other law enforcement officers and maybe other people that are dealing with this type of stress um, to deal with it and cope with it. Um, and I've been been very very grateful with my family and, and the support that I've gotten. I I, I wasn't a a, a a good person to be around with. I mean, I I I give a lot of credit to my wife and my kids because I, I was a very uh, difficult person to be around with after the shooting. Um, and, and and they say they understand, but a lot of this, a lot of the, the treatment and and the irritability and the depression, all that stuff that comes with it. I never I had never dealt with that. I, I had never felt that. I didn't know. I didn't know how to deal with it. Um, but help. But but I, I sought help, and, and it helped me a lot. So it it was it was a um, a difficult thing to to deal with, especially with the Zapata family. They were very. You know, I'm the last one to see their their son alive, and I wish I could always tell them more. And believe it or not, in the eight hours or so that Jaime and I interacted. It's like I knew him for a long, long time. Especially, I learned a lot of personal things about him. And I learned later that he told me things that he had never shared with anyone before. And and so I'm glad that I was able to share that those moments with him and to tell his family what, 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 what a gracious uh, person uh, he was. And, and just try to, uh, you know, it's, every time I see them, it, it's a very difficult thing because it, it, I can't do anything else to other than try to comfort them by by doing what I'm doing with you right now is just to tell the story and hopefully get some answers for them about the assignment and all the other issues. Uh, we could talk about weapons right now. And that's a whole other issue with Fast and Furious. But uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, unanswered questions out there. And I think my role now is to to be here to help them um, and help me also get get all these things answered, all these questions. Well, you're doing a great job, man. And uh, the, the reality is that for you to come out here and talk about incidents like this and then kind of put your, your, your heart out there uh, for others to hear and to learn from this, you know, that is very, very much uh, respectful. I give you a lot of respect for that, man. And, uh, you know, in my book, you are a warrior, no doubt about it. Someone that, you know, fought the battle, came through. But more importantly, now, Victor, that you are giving of yourself to try to help others. Tell me what you took out of this incident into your life right now. Like, what did you learn? What If you were to give me three things right now that you learned from this incident and then you have implemented and integrated into your life. No, that's a that's a that's a it's a difficult question um, because it's it, the the whole incident and and what I went through a lot of it is not positive it's not positive especially the aftermath and and it it I went through a big big identity crisis um, especially with my employer I was a very very loyal federal employee and I was a hardworking agent I enjoyed my job I loved my job. And I struggled with that. I struggled with the loyalty part of it for a couple of years after the shooting. I, I couldn't believe um, why why the treatment of me and my family was going a certain way, 
negative, negative, very negative for my family and I, when all I did was serve and, and try to do the best that I could. And so uh, loyalty, I learned, is um, uh, it, it's a very good thing. And it sometimes when you when you dive yourself so much into it, I, I gave all. I gave all to my job. And um, that identity crisis that I went through is um, I just kind of became, oh, oh, this is the guy that got shot. Oh, Victor, the guy that got shot. But let me tell you, I'm a lot more than that. I'm a, I'm a husband, a father, a son. And, and on top of everything, I was a special agent. I was a criminal investigator that did a lot of great investigations and, and put some bad people behind bars. And I struggled with that. With that. Um, so I, that's one thing I learned is that to identify who you are. And a lot of these treatments, they, they tell you, what's your why? Tell me what your why is. And, and when you start thinking about it, it's, it you, you dive deep into it. And what's my why? What's my, what's my purpose here? And so um, one thing I learned is um, who you are as a person. I learned that, that I am a person, that I do. Uh, I have a role here in life. And what I happen to do is my career. And as law enforcement officers, it's a very thin line, as you know, to, you know, you come home, you, you leave the job. You try to you know separate yourself from that, but my friends and the family were law. A lot of a lot of my friends, if not all of them, were law enforcement. Those are the people we surround ourselves with. Um, so it was, it was it was a very very difficult. My identity is one thing that I, I struggled with. That I learned that to at least know who I am. Um, I'm working on, on others. I'm, I don't know if I could give you three right now, but I'm working. I'm working on the others. Uh, one that I, that the other thing I want want to do is be able to tell people and share not just uh, obviously the story of what happened to me, but I have a lot of other stuff to share about uh, my expertise in my job and what I used to do, um, specifically talking about immigration and, and all this stuff that's going on right now. Sure. I, I want to be able to give that back. I want to be able to share that, that intelligence that I had for a person that actually worked there, been there, done that. Um, I want that platform I'm, I'm hoping to get it. I'm hoping to, to be able to share that uh, with people that can use that information. That's great, man. That's great. So you were talking to me a little bit about that. Uh, you possibly, either you have a book in the works or, or talk to me a little bit about that. So, yeah, several years ago, um, uh, right away I wanted to put this down in writing. And <laughs> I went to college, but it's uh, – it's difficult to write a book, man. It's uh, it's not an easy thing. So, I hired out of pocket, uh, hired a ghostwriter to help me write this proposal. We got this really good proposal down. Uh, I got an agent, and you know, all this literary world is, is new to me. And I'm trying to learn about it, and I'm trying to get a publishing company to to pick me up. And 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 I'm not interested in money here. I'm interested in, in getting the story out. But it just it just hasn't happened. Uh, the uh, the, the publishing companies that my proposal has been um, proposed to has not has not come to fruition. They've all passed, and uh, we tried again with a different agent last year. We got really close with Crown Publishing, um, and at the very end, they they said no as well. And it, it's a good book. I mean, right now the the title of the book is Murder on Highway Fifty Seven. Drug cartels, human traffickers, mass murders, and the struggle to secure our southern border. 
And it's basically a, kind of a bit of a memoir uh, talking about who I am uh, growing up as a, as a Mexican-American, uh, first generation on a border town, you know, going to school, uh, becoming a law enforcement agent, and everything, especially, specifically what I did in Mexico and what I, what I saw and what I investigated. I want people to be aware of what was going on there and the type of, uh, types of investigations that I conducted. Um, I am very proud of the work that I did. And also tells, you know, just uh, kind of gives a whole good picture of agents and U.S. personnel assigned abroad. A lot of people don't even know that they have people out there, you know, all over the world. ICE has 76 offices around the world um, uh, with agents there uh, helping uh, to secure our homeland. So that's basically what the book is about. It also uh, encompasses a lot of questions uh, as to, um, you know, why we haven't been provided with the documents that we've been asking for. Then a whole chapter is going to deal with Fast and Furious because the guns, uh, I don't know if you know this, Rafa, but the, the two of the weapons that were recovered from our shooting were, were guns from a gun walking operation out of Dallas, um, just like Fast and Furious out of Phoenix. Right. So uh, that's, that's a whole other, I could probably write a whole book just on that. But uh, I want people to be aware of, of a lot of unanswered questions, a lot of things that, that, uh, that happened during the previous administration that we want answers to. Damn, man. Some great stuff there, brother. Now, do you have any type of social media or anything like that where you connect with individuals? I'm on Twitter. That's the only social media okay. I do right now. Okay. How, do, how can people get a hold of you or, or follow you on Twitter? My Twitter is at the Survivor 11. The Survivor at, 11. Gotcha. Yes, at the Survivor 11. You can follow me there. Um, I, I, um, I, I basically, that's basically what, what this tweet account is for is just to talk about this. And, and, uh, I also, um, uh, talk a lot with, uh, family of, uh, agent Brian Terry, who was killed by, by weapons, by fast, fast and furious weapons, the border patrol agent. I talked to his brother a lot and we communicate and we're both, both families are trying to get answers. Wow. Heavy stuff right there, man. Listen, you've been a class act, brother. Thank you for going deep into the story. Thank you for really putting it out there. And uh, like I said, man, you're a hero. You're a warrior in my book, no doubt about that. Appreciate that. Appreciate those words. Thank you. All right, brother. Thank you for being on. Thank you, Rafa. Thank you very much. There you have it. What a powerful conversation with Victor Avila. This guy is a hero in my book, no doubt about it. Very emotional, deep conversation. So much to learn from here, right? So much that you could absorb and integrate into your life. This guy was a survivor and he's doing the best he can right now to continue living his life and continue walking in that warrior's path, being the man that he is. All right, my brothers, remember, we got the Conclave of Warriors, downtown Miami, December 1 and 2. Go check it out, conclaveofwarriors.com. Please give me a follow on Instagram at manofwar with two R's. All right, until next time, your life may be challenging and full of dangers, but never retreat. Your last battle may be your greatest victory.